Okay, time for some opening remarks. Just wanted to take a minute to pause and reflect on how the podcast experience has been going uh, now that I'm nine uh, episodes in, uh, recording my 10th one. So in terms of metrics, the previous nine episodes, or I should say the first nine episodes, have garnered 193 total plays. And Anchor has a nice dashboard providing me these metrics. And Anchor says that they estimate around 21 uh, unique individuals. That's the audience size. There must be something unique about tracking where the plays are coming from. So they're determining around 21 individuals. That's pretty cool. And I would say that my most played episode is episode number seven. That has 38 plays. And that is an episode that's probably not too surprising for being my top episode because it is an episode that I go through podcasting, talk about my favorite anatomy podcasts, my favorite stamp collecting podcast. And I think if you'll uh, really want to take a a listen out uh, another episode, I'd say go have a listen to number seven seems to be pretty popular. And that's probably because it got shared pretty far and wide. I had a lot of my anatomy colleagues uh, pick up on this. A lot of them that run the podcast I mentioned, and I'm sure that they helped promote it using their own podcast Twitter accounts. Other demographics of my listeners, 63% of the plays of the podcast are in the United States. Second, 15% in the UK. And in third place, 8% coming from Canada. And then in terms of the platform used to play the audio file, Anchor does an amazing job at disseminating and sharing and broadcasting the audio to several platforms automatically. I don't need to go do this uh, platform by platform. And what I find is that Apple Podcast is the number one platform with 39% of plays. And then the actual Anchor platform itself. That's another great thing about Anchor. In addition to producing uh, this podcast on my smartphone, you can also find other podcasts and listen to them. So that seems to be a pretty popular second option. And then thirdly is the option that I use for my podcast listening, and that is the app Overcast. I definitely recommend you go download Overcast and support them. And last metric for the first nine episodes, I get to see what device the plays are coming through on and not too surprising iphone is the most popular platform at 40 percent and what did kind of shock me was 23 percent of podcast plays are coming through the web i do not really ever listen to a podcast through the web which i imagine is through a browser of some sort Um, and then third place is 14 percent on the specifically a mac platform so those are some real nice metrics that Anchor provides uh, within a dashboard in the app, and it's just really insightful, and it gives me a little bit of feedback on how things are going, who my audience is, how to make things better. So speaking of making things better, with this episode, I debut a couple of enhancements. Um, my episode number is going to be present in the title of each episode. That's a pretty good industry convention in podcasting to number your episodes and that's going to make referencing quite easy and then i also am going to provide more elaborate links in the the notes section where i can actually put a description of what i'm talking about i will provide the links um, within the podcast episode and that kind of just makes it a lot easier for folks instead of forcing everybody to go look at the twitter account you can most likely in whatever 
platform or whatever device you're on, you can look at those notes. Check out those links. I am trying out a script. It's a outline bullet form at this point, but it really just allows me to gather my thoughts and really it's uh, given me an opportunity to provide a little bit more of a template and a, a framework for the podcast. And I'm also going to uh, be trying out episode-specific artwork. I noticed that Anchor allows for that. And I am going to have a special uh, twist to every episode that I'm doing. And you're going to need to stay tuned for the end uh, to see what that is. And I will incorporate that special, unique aspect of every episode in the episode artwork. So those are the opening remarks. If you want to reach out to me, Twitter is pretty good. Uh, that's going to be going to the Twitter handle for the podcast, uh, Dissect Philately, and that's D-I-S-S-E-C, Philately, P-H-I-L-A-T-E-L-Y, or you can email me. I'll drop my um, my personal email, pasco.michael at gmail.com, and don't forget that's P-A-S-C-O-E dot michael at gmail.com. I'm more than happy to hear any feedback you have on how the podcast is going or mostly about any of the topics that I'm discussing. Did I miss anything? Do you have something to contribute that I should mention? Uh, That would be really neat. And lastly, it would really help the podcast if you were to uh, rate on iTunes. I definitely see that a lot of people are listening to the podcast via Apple iTunes. And if you could just take a moment to rate the podcast, give it a star rating, uh, and better yet, just a one-liner about what you like most about the podcast. And I also think that if you're listening on Overcast, you can go ahead and hit the little star icon and show your... um, yeah, your love of the podcast that way. Thanks so much, a bunch, guys. That's it for the opening remarks. Okay, the next section of this episode relates to anatomy. And really, just to back up, the, the overall theme of the episode is standardization. So what do we call anatomical structures? How do we know when the thing is a structure? And are there other um, varieties of this structure? Are there other agreed upon names of this structure? Same concept will cross over into stamp collecting. What is a unique issue of a stamp? How do we catalog stamps? How are the catalogs organized? So what I'd like to do is kick off the concept looking at how we address this concept in anatomy. So what you need to know about in anatomy for terminology is the publication Terminologia Anatomica. I'll refer to this as the TA from this point on because, like most anatomy, it's a mouthful. So why do we need the TA? This is really needed as a reference point for what to call anatomical structures. There are oftentimes multiple names for the same structure, so it really does give us a sense of preference, what we should be using, And there is this unfortunate scenario where we still like to attribute the names of individuals that characterize structures uh, as the term for that structure. This is, of course, an eponym, and there's a real push in anatomy education to push those out. Get rid of eponyms. They convey no meaningful information. It's really like a secret handshake in anatomy. You, You only know about the structure if you know the secret behind the person's name. So 
that's pretty much why we need Terminologia Anatomica. There's so many structures in the body, and it's just really good to know as a student of anatomy, as a clinician of anatomy, as a teacher of anatomy, what should we call the thing, and when do we have a completely different thing? So really, just the definition of TA, it's an international standard on human anatomical terminology. So the format that I have of the TA is a book, and so I'll just use that as an um, example. And so when I open my book of the TA, I am finding that there's a Latin term for each structure accompanied by the current term uh, in English-speaking countries. Begins with the general term section. So think about anterior, posterior, abduction, adduction. Those terms are, are starting off the, the book. And then the next sections are divided into systems that are the following. Bones, joints, muscles, elementary system, respiratory system, thoracic cavity, urinary system, genital system, lymphoid system, abdominal pelvic cavity, endocrine glands, cardiovascular system, nervous system, and lastly, sense organs and the integument. So just to give you an example of how this is laid out, if I crack open the TA, I might land on the respiratory system and I will find a table. And essentially at the leftmost uh, column, I will see a categorical number. So this is the number for the, no um, the nose. A06.1.02.001. Cavitas nasi, nasal cavity. So the nasal cavity, it's a very hierarchical organization, fits into respiratory system, and then it is in the section related to the nasus or the nose. A06.1.02.001. Cavitas nasi, that's the Latin, and then the preferred current English term nasal cavity. So the way that the table is laid out, there's indentation, there's styles of heading used to indicate relations between structures. Footnotes are provided when needed to explain um, the committee rationale behind their decision on determining the name of a structure. And if you go into Wikipedia and do a search for nasal cavity, Wikipedia does a great job of applying templates to the many different kinds of articles. There's an anatomical structure template, and part of that template is an info box in the top right corner of each article. And that's where you'll find like the, the public domain image uh, from Gray's Anatomy. So that's a very typical image to start at the top of the info box. And then as you go down the info box, you'll see... Uh, the, the TA, you'll see the TA catalog number, that A06.1 and so on. So you, you have seen these TA numbers before, but you may not have paid attention to them. And as an anatomy educator, I don't have any real need for those numbers. I think that would be kind of interesting to, to use those numbers in my, an, um, my course content, but I think that would drive students crazy. So unless somebody can convince me, uh, those are there for... Um, terminology arguments, and they're not really there for, for educational purposes. But it does help to have this cross-referencing, and that's a very important aspect of Wikipedia. Okay, and then also a really cool part of the TA is an index of eponyms. So there is a whole list and its own dedicated section. For example, my instructor or my preceptor in clinic kept going on and on about Kali's fascia. 
And I know we're talking about the perineum, but what is Kali's fascia? My anatomy instructor didn't use eponyms, so what's going on? So uh, sure enough, in the index, this directs us to structure number A09.5.00.007. On page 71, we can see that Kali's fascia in the perineum is the membranous layer of the perineum. And that also corresponds with uh, stratum membranosum. So that's the layout. That's how the TA is organized. And really, in terms of usage, I just mentioned translating eponyms, confirming spelling. This is a really helpful way uh, to understand whether um, vesicle is V-I or V-E-S-I-C-L-E or is it a C-A-L? I'm always having to, to check that one. And then we also get a sense of what's an official term. So this always comes up. And really, when people are learning anatomy, these are legitimate questions. What is the official term for the peroneal nerve, the common peroneal nerve? Is it the common fibular nerve or is it the common peroneal nerve? So when you go in the TA, you're given an answer because the gold standard or the official term is listed first, uh, which you should know is fibular. Peroneal, you can therefore tell your students is the legacy term. You might hear preceptors or other faculty uh, use this term peroneal, but please try to utilize fibular. Again, it conveys much more meaning about where the structure is located, and it it, uh, gets a little bit more um, awkward when you're examining the patient's perineum when they've come in for lateral leg pain. So the last use that I found was to determine if a structure is male versus female. That might not always be obvious, but that is information that is contained in the TA. And if you also want to know what the corresponding homologue for a structure is, that is also present in the TA. Okay, so is it actually used in this way? I did not remember to grab the research paper. I'll have to put a link in the the notes for the episode. But the the basic takeaway I remember from this study was it was a survey of anatomy instructors, and they wanted to know uh, terminology conventions. And then they compared this against what you're supposed to be doing according to the Terminologia Anatomica. So the big one that I remember that 95% of anatomists do that is in line with the TA is using Roman numerals when referring to the cranial nerves. We're doing a great job in that regard. Now, one that hardly anybody uses is you're also supposed to use Roman numerals when referring to segmental levels of vertebral structures, such as the vertebrae. And I don't do this, and I've never seen anybody use Roman numerals, and that's what the survey showed. They showed uh, probably, again, 95% of anatomists do not use Roman numerals, but rather the Arabic numeral. So I'll have to share the link to that paper. There's a lot of other uh, more in-depth findings, and it's just a really good study of here's the TA. We have a document as anatomist that should guide us. Sometimes we do a great job, and sometimes there's something we can do better. Well, who makes the TA? It was developed by the Federative Committee on Anatomical Terminology, often referred to as FCAT, and with input from International Federation of Associations of Anatomists, the IFAA, and the TA made its first appearance in 1998. Now, there's also another group that contributes, and this is the Federative International Program on Anatomical Terminologies, FIPAT, and these groups uh, 
work together on putting out the TA. And the TA has a much more dense and rich history than I have time um, to cover. And if you'll want to check into that, you can certainly find information on the, the precursor to the TA. So let's get a sense of the magnitude of the TA, like how many structures, how many pages. I found a description of the TA containing terminology for about 7,500 human gross anatomical structures. So it is important to note that the TA is going to be for macroscopic structures. And there's also catalogs for other disciplines that make up anatomy. So think of terminologia, histologica. So there is going to be another completely different dedicated text toward what we should call the microscopic anatomy. But back to the TA, 292 pages, and when I put that on the scale, that came out to 30 ounces. The first edition was released in November of 1998. Currently, we're in the second edition, and that was released in 2011. That's the version that I have a hard copy of. I bought a copy off of Amazon. The, the publisher is Tima, so you'll want to look for a hard copy in that way. There's also a link to the FA, excuse me, the FIPAT um, website, and they, it looks like they have made the Terminologia Anatomica uh, free and publicly available. So I'll put the link in the notes and you can check that out. And another great link to look at is anatomicalterms.info. I use this several times a week whenever I have a gross anatomical terminology question. Essentially, a researcher anatomist has taken all of the data in the TA and put it into a database that is then searchable. I will tell you that it is very time consuming to flip through the 292 pages of the physical paper TA. What I spend most of my time doing is Okay, a student has a question. Their um, undergrad notes were referring to a structure in this name, and is that an acceptable term? Or is that even the right term, analogous term for what I'm teaching? So I can go in there and I can look, and then I can very quickly through the search engine of a website determine uh, what the structure is. Now, sometimes when you do a search in anatomicalterms.info, you do not get a result. And that just tells you that you've got the wrong term. That is not the name of a structure or the analogous term is not indexed. And you may need to go do some more exploration and some more digging. But I really use the website, again, to decode um, and understand eponyms. Okay, what is Cauley's fascia? Because I don't teach that very often. I don't really remember what that is, but I'll find out very quickly through this website. And it's great for spelling. And it's also great for other languages. So the, the hard copy book of the TA has the Latin as the primary and the English as the secondary. There's also other languages uh, for anatomical terms. And the ones that kind of stand out to me that are used on anatomical terms.info, I think there's Dutch on there and I think there's Chinese. So that's really helpful to help you know, translate and come to a unified international standard for our anatomical terms. I'll put a link to the Wikipedia article for the TA um, in the notes as well. You'll want to look at that. That is going to have some reference to the history of the TA. And I'd really like to hear how my colleagues are using um, the TA in anatomy education. 
I again, I use it to standardize my structures. Whenever I present present a list of bony landmarks or a list of arteries, I really do like to reference and make sure that I'm using the correct terminology. Oftentimes textbooks have it wrong and you'll need to correct that. But I really like to have consistency within my course and just provide the, the learner with the international standard. And then when necessary, I can mention, okay, you may also hear of the structure referred to as this. So that'll wrap up this section on the anatomical equivalent or the anatomical example of how things are cataloged. And we'll then move on to the philatelic example. All right, let's get to the philatelic segment of the episode, the Scott Standard Postage Stamp Catalog. Now, because I covered anatomy already, there's going to be some opportunity to um, overlap. And in stamp collecting, this catalog is needed so that way you basically know what the stamp is in front of you. There are so many variations of postage stamps that are not overly apparent by just looking at the design of the stamp. Even the design itself will have variations, so that's a commonality between the disciplines. Things will oftentimes um, present the same, but they will have a variation that does make them completely different things. So the the postage stamp catalog, uh, which is referred to as the Scott's catalog, this is used to help identify what stamp you have. So that's why it's needed. There's just so many varieties and so many different permutations in the way stamps are produced, uh, even the way that they're used, that really can determine whether or not you're dealing with a unique stamp or if it warrants its own separate um, denotation. So how is the Scott's catalog structured? Basically, it is a pictorial catalog, and the main item of interest is the Scott number. So that is going to be a way to communicate what stamp you have. Um, I am interested in purchasing a number nine when I go to a stamp show, for example. So as I go through the dealer's inventory, I can they're usually organized in order based on the Scott, the Scott's number. This is how the stamps are usually described um, on eBay, and the Scott number is also used in uh, stamp albums. So that way you know uh, where a stamp goes. The illustrations in the Scott um, catalog are life-size, which really helps out. They're fully color, and it just really helps out with identification of the stamps. And it also gives a lot of other detailed information. So let's say you're looking at, again, uh, that that, uh, stamp number nine, and you want to know what kind of paper it was printed on. Stamps obviously were released in uh, their own unique year. Uh, Various types of engraving are used, and also variations of um, perforation are used. You also get information on the denomination. That's a really good indicator for identification. Um, How many, what was the postal rate at the time? Was it three cents? Was it 15 cents? You get that in the catalog. You get the color. Boy, color on its own requires a whole nother episode. Um, Color is a quite complicated uh, concept in stamp collecting. Nonetheless, the catalog makes an attempt at defining um, and naming the color of each stamp that's been issued. And then it is a catalog. It is a bit of a price guide. It does present um, the value 
of used and unused examples of a given stamp. And this is continually updated based on auctions. And so a, a Scott catalog is released every year. So essentially what you're gonna do with the, the Scott catalog is you're gonna use it to determine what stamp you have. Is it a number seven? Is it a number nine? And then you're also gonna be able to determine the value of a stamp. So this is what the catalog value is referred to as. And the catalog value is usually referenced in sales and auctions. And it's a bit of a, of a, you know, a signpost as to how much an item is worth. You also um, will recognize that there are other standard postage stamp catalogs. So the Scott catalog is the the, U, the United States version. I think it kind of took off and got a little bit more marketing and notoriety. I really don't know, having you know not lived in another country. But from what I've gathered, Scott is kind of a standard. But other competitors include the Stanley Gibbons catalog out of the UK and then the Michel catalog out of Germany. Also countries with a very rich philatelic history uh, with a large number of stamp collectors and necessitating their own catalogs. So how big is the Scott catalog? So I, I'm not really sure, I didn't look at how many unique um, stamps there are, but when we said an anatomical structures, 7,500, um, let me actually look and see what the, the most recent Scott number is for 2020 stamps. Okay, I went to the uh, mysticstamp.com website to see what the Scott number is for the last stamp issued in 2019. Scott number 5427, the first class forever stamp, contemporary Christmas, the woodland bush ivy and red winterberry wreath, 5,427. So that is a rough estimate of how many postage stamps have been issued by the uh, United States. However, that's not completely accurate because there are sub-catalog numbers. So, for example, there's a number uh, 1040. There's also a Scott number 1040A that has a variation to it that is a completely different stamp. So it probably, that would be kind of interesting to see if the there's a similar number of postage stamps to... Um, structures in the Terminologia Anatomica. It's, it's getting close. It's on the order of, you know, five to 7,000 unique stamps. The weight of the Scott's um, specialized catalog is 82 ounces. So more than double the weight of the Terminologia Anatomica. Uh, the Scott catalog is pretty bulky. I do not carry it around with me. I leave it in my study uh, where all my stamp collecting materials are. I, I don't really see people walking around with it. So um, the the most recent edition uh, I've seen is the 2020 edition, obviously. Um, the website that puts this out, um, Amos, A-M-O-S, they're sold out there and you can pre-order for 2021. But when I just landed on mysticstamp.com, I see that you can get a copy of the 2020 Scott catalog for $140. But I don't know if you need to buy it new right away. This has been my experience. The first thing I did when I was considering the value and whether I would need a Scott catalog is I did an interlibrary loan through my city's uh, public library. My public library, in other words, did not have a copy on site, 
but a neighboring library did, and interlibrary loan was a free service. I was able to get my hands on a catalog, um, use it for a little bit, and it really did sell me on the need to have this. I'm sure that the philatelic library nearest you is going to have a Scott catalog on a table under a spotlight uh, with humming angels around it. I mean, this is essentially the Bible of stamp collecting. And I think that if you go to your local philatelic library, if you're fortunate enough to have one, they're going to have not only the most recent Scott catalog, but they'll probably have a backlog of several decades of these catalogs. So what I ended up doing was picking up a used one on eBay. I think I have a 2017 catalog that I got in 2019. So I was able to pick it up for like after, you know, what I what I do on eBay is I take a look and make sure that I'm getting a good deal. I watch uh, sales. I track historic sale data, look at the sold and, and, and ended auctions. And I think I saw that a a two-year-old Scott catalog could be had for like 30 to $35. And I think that's what I got compared to a brand new one that is around 140 And there's also um, an interesting uh, way to look at a very old, like 2009 version. If you really want to get kind of a crude view of what a Scott catalog looks like um, or have a digital version, there's an app that I'll put a link to called Issue, and it's I-S-U-U. And I think what issue is basically a database or a repository of publications. <coughs> Excuse me. So there's magazines. And somehow somebody put a 2009 version of the Scott catalog on issue. So you can take a look at that. So personally, again, with my usage, I distinguish between different types of designs. Um, is it a number, uh, I mean, is it a 68, a Scott number 68, a dark green George Washington that is relatively inexpensive? Or is it that one that I, the last one I need to fill a page in my album, the 62B, which is quite rare and quite expensive. But when you just take a passing glance at the design, it's not obvious what the difference is. But when you look in the Scott catalog, they do a great job of detailing what the differences are with a, a blow up or a zoom in of the area of the stamp design that's different. Really, you know, what you, would, what you would be able to detect under a microscope. And then you would be very sure. And then it's also good to know about, okay, when you're, pub, when you're making stamp albums, you kind of have a, some decisions to make. On one end of the spectrum, you're going to make a child's album that only presents the most abundant, inexpensive, easiest to come across stamps. You're only going to put those stamps in the album. That's really going to hold the interest of the child to complete a page and something that's realistic. Then on the other end of things, you could have every possible Scott number that's in the catalog. And I don't really know what that looks like. I don't know who puts that product out, but I'm kind of um, near the upper end with the stamp album that I have. However, there are about 10 or 12 stamps that I have that don't have a space in my stamp album. So, you know, it's it's kind of a limitation of the stamp album, but when you think about the product and the marketing and what um, the company is trying to put together, they have to draw the line somewhere. So examples that I'm speaking on, there's a 12-cent black George Washington issue uh, from the 19th century. That is a number 36. And then there's also a 36B. There is no spot in my album for a 36B. So what I've chosen to do is get a nice black um, show guard mount, 
put the 36B in there, and mount that on the opposing page. So those are the ways that I use the Scott catalog. Then I, then I know that the 36B is a thing and that if it's not, uh, there's not a space in my album, I know that it is a 36B and I can put it in, my, in myself. There's um, some controversy or limitations, considerations to consider with the Scott catalog. You should know that the Scott number is considered the gold standard in at least the American stamp collecting industry. And they are highly protected and restricted. So the Scott catalog and the numbering system has been copyrighted by Amos Press, A-M-O-S Press. So you do need to have a licensing agreement to use the Scott numbers, which does kind of present a barrier to access. The Terminologia Anatomica is a somewhat readily available, freely usable standard to use. But if I wanted to make my own stamp album pages and try to sell them at least, I could not use the Scott number. So that does mean that when you go on and looking at websites, you cannot use the Scott number typically on a website because that's a proprietary standard and you would need to have some kind of agreement. Fortunately, the stamp album that I do use has an agreement they do lay out up front at the beginning of the album that they have permission from Amos Press to use the Scott number. I will say that the Scott um, catalog is very technical, so it's very difficult for beginners. I never looked at a Scott catalog when I was um, a youth in stamp collecting. Never crossed my mind. I was basically at the mercy of whatever details the stamp album provided, and that was not always helpful. So now the um, Scott's album is in my life, and it's very helpful now that I'm a more technical collector, but man, it is very difficult for beginners. Um, They do a good job of explaining how it's put together and what the terms mean, but nonetheless, I imagine opening the Scott catalog up and looking at a given page will be very intimidating. There are so many numbers on the page. I'm sure it's hard to sort out. It takes some time. The um, Scott catalog is also organized chronologically. So that's a consideration um, when you're thinking about how to navigate. And the other thing I wanted to mention is that the catalog is often cited as a source of value, but it's really something to consider in that it's not accurate to what the market garners all the time. So what's really common on marketplaces such as eBay is somebody will have a stamp and they will look at it and identify it as Scott number 153, for example, and they will see that the catalog value for that stamp is $500 used, and that's what they will expect as a price for that stamp. Now, you have to consider that different time points in um, stamp production have different standards for quality. They have basically listed the value based on whether the stamp is in fine condition or very fine or extremely fine. So you have to know what the condition of the stamp is that correlates to the catalog value. So almost always people are are, are over-inflating and overvaluing their collections, and then they're overpricing their material. So you really have to be aware of that. And a lot of times people will 
will kind of scoff at or have commentary on what somebody is listed an item for or what an item is going for at auction. Um, Catalog value is nice to provide when you're selling stamps, but I almost never ever have bought a stamp at full catalog value. I'm okay with kind of what is called a filler or a, a lower quality stamp going into my album. And so I definitely shoot for a much lower percent of catalog value. So again, when you're a beginner and you look at the stamp in your Scott catalog, you think, wow, I have a mint George Washington stamp from 1932. It's going to be very valuable. And look at the catalog. It says it's going to sell for 20 bucks. You might find that people are not going to even talk to you about buying it unless it's um, 3 to $4. So I'll provide some links, again, for um, purchasing the stamp catalog from the Amos website. I'll put a link to the Wikipedia article for the Scott catalog, and that will do it for the philately section of this episode. Okay, I've got another what I think would be a fun section to include in the podcast, and that's what I call by the numbers. So by the numbers, anatomically, this is episode 10. And anatomical 10, let's go with the cranial nerves, cranial nerve 10. The name of cranial nerve 10 is the vagus nerve. And as we talked about earlier, you will want to refer to the vagus nerve using your Roman numerals, which is X for 10. The vagus nerve arises from the central nervous system, a level medulla. So this is from the brain stem. And the vagus nerve is going to leave the skull through the jugular foramen. There are five different modalities or functions of the vagus nerve. I just want to review them for you quickly. Uh, The branchial motor will be the part of the vagus nerve involved in innervation of the muscles of the pharynx, the larynx, the palate, upper two-thirds of the esophagus, and um, various other um, constrictors and muscles of the palate. So any um, lesion to the vagus nerve would affect these um, motor um, functions and would present as somebody that has trouble speaking, uh, dysphagia. They would have a weak or a hoarse voice. Their palate will be saggy. And then that uh, uvula will be deviated. The second function um, comes through a pre-ganglionic parasympathetic pathway, and that is going to go to the smooth muscle and viscera all the way up to the splenic flexure. So this is our, when we think about parasympathetic innervation of our viscera, we're really thinking of the vagus nerve carrying a large share of those axons. And interestingly enough, if there's a lesion of, let's say, like one of the vagus nerves, uh, because they are paired, of course, it's usually insignificant. The other um, vagus nerve will be able to um, pick up the, um, the, the load there. There's also sensory innervation uh, that goes to the skin of the ear, external auditory meatus, also the dura in the posterior cranial fossa. So with a cranial nerve 10 with a vagus nerve lesion, there'd be anesthesia of the external auditory canal. Um, that symptom would suggest uh, vagus nerve lesion. There's also visceral sensory information. Now, this is coming from uh, branches that go to the aortic arch, as well as the thorax and abdominal viscera. So again, there is redundancy between right and left vagus nerves. If there's a a vagus nerve lesion, uh, there will not likely be any problem 
uh, with the innervation of this viscera, uh, the sensory innervation. And with the aortic arch, I'll just um, go on to say that uh, this is going to be a baroreceptor monitoring bl uh, blood pressure at the aortic arch. And the fifth and final modality carried by the vagus nerve is taste. The internal laryngeal nerve is going to carry taste axons, and they are going to be going to the epiglottis and the palate. And because these are not our primary uh, locations of taste information, a lesion of the vagus nerve is usually seen as insignificant in terms of compromising um, the function of taste. So there's a summary of some uh, details of the anatomical 10 related to podcast episode 10, the vagus nerve. And now let's go on to an philatelic 10. We just talked about the Scott catalog. So I think what I'll do most of the time is I will uh, pick for you the information for the catalog number for that episode. So let's go to Scott number 10. Scott number 10 is a definitive issue with a denomination of three cents featuring George Washington. The color of this stamp is orange-brown. It is a type one in terms of variation. It was printed in 1851. It is imperforate, meaning that it has straight edges on all four sides of the stamps. 20 million of these stamps were made. They were made using a process of flat plate printing. The design on the face of the stamp measures 20 by 25 millimeters, and it is not watermarked. I do have a Scott number 10 in my collection, and I will also provide a link to a website, theswedishtiger.com, provides a lot of the information that I just referenced. And that does it for Buy the Numbers. All right. Thanks for uh, hanging in with me. Hopefully you enjoyed the episode. Just going to close things out here, uh, asking you to tell me what you think of the new enhancements. Uh, what did you think of the, the script? What do you think about episode numbers? Uh, what do you think about the, the structure of each episode? Um, anything and everything that you might have noticed about the, the episode, I'd love to hear that. And then um, what else would you like uh, to hear about? I've got an agenda. I've got all kinds of things that strike me as I go throughout the week of crossover concepts between anatomy and stamp collecting. So I've, I've got a good battery here that I'll, I'll roll out. And really scripting the episodes kind of puts them at about a month um, of production, just given the minimal amount of time that I put toward this um, in my life. So um, you'll probably expect to see an episode in, in March um, from me. Uh, we'll see if that uh, holds true. And again, you can uh, contact me uh, looking at the Twitter account for this podcast, Dissect Philately, D-I-S-S-E-C, Philately. And you can also email me, pasco.michael at gmail.com. See you next time.